book of Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Frank Borham was a pastor who ministered mostly in Australia in the first half of the 20th century. He penned this exhortation to pastors. I quote, It is the duty of the pulpit to say the same things over and over again. These repeated truths must be clothed in different phraseology, illumined by fresh illustration, and approached by a new line of thought, but the things that are really worth saying must be said repeatedly. The theme of today's sermon, in fact of today's song service, is one we have visited with regularity over the years, particularly in recent years as we have made advances as a church in the areas of structure and orientation of our assembly. In the next issue of Vox Ecclesia, our church newsletter, Pastor Pratt is going to summarize these truths yet again. We continue to repeat them because there is a generation growing up among us that needs to be trained in these truths and to become able to discern what a true church is. We repeat these truths because new people come to join with us from time to time. And we repeat these truths to continue to test ourselves against God's Word and His purposes for us as a church. And that brings us in our series through the biblical theme, studying the biblical theme of shepherding from Old Testament to New, it brings us now into the New Testament as we consider the spiritual shepherds of the New Testament church. Uh, Two of the installments in this series were given on Sunday night, so if you're not with us typically on Sunday night, you've missed a large chunk of the series as we consider the Old Testament shepherds. We then looked last week at Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd, But we come now beyond Jesus Christ, beyond His work as shepherd, and we consider this truth of the shepherds of the church. As we have made progress through this series, we've looked at God as our shepherd from that classic Psalm 23 where David says, The Lord is my shepherd. As the Old Testament unfolds, we look then at those leaders of Israel who were referred to in shepherding terms. Moses was a literal shepherd who shepherded the people of Israel out of Egypt. And David was a literal shepherd who shepherded the people of God as the king of God's choice. And then the prophets and kings were referred to as shepherds of Israel. And we noted last Sunday night in particular the failure of these shepherds. We looked at that theme in the prophet Jeremiah and in the prophet Ezekiel. And we did not have time, but also the prophet Zechariah used this theme and point to this idea that these shepherds failed God in their stewardship of giving leadership to Israel. That leads us then to consider, as we move into the New Testament, Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd. There's much more to that than him simply choosing out a theme. I think that he is purposefully reflecting this failure of the Old Testament shepherds and saying, I am the good shepherd. But we know, of course, that today Jesus is gone. He is not with us here. He is not physically leading his sheep. We realize that Jesus died, that he rose again, that though he sits at heaven's throne now, he intercedes for his people. He is not silent. 
but is pouring out His Holy Spirit upon those who come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And as He baptizes people who come to believe in that message of salvation in Jesus, they form then the church of Jesus Christ. As Old Testament Israel was led by spiritual shepherds, it is no surprise that God supplies then His people, the church, with spiritual shepherds. We notice this in one place among many, Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 11. Ephesians chapter 4, referring to the ascended and risen and victorious Christ who has risen from the dead, we find in Ephesians 4.11, it was He who gave some to be apostles. That is, Jesus gives to His people, the church, some individuals to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, or pastor slash teacher as one function, I think would be the best way to take that idea. Pastors and teachers, why? Verse 12, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. God lays out for us here in His Word His plan for His people and for His church and says that in a unique way he supplies to his church in these days pastors and teachers. Now the first shepherds of the New Testament church were whom? The first shepherds were the apostles. They were there, eyewitnesses of Jesus' teaching, eyewitnesses of Jesus' death and resurrection. And they were the ones who first shepherded the church of Jesus Christ. But as time passed, as the church grew, local churches were increasingly led by men referred to as elders or overseers. Let's turn to Acts chapter 14 as we see in his busyness the Apostle Paul stopping at various locations where the gospel has been preached. People are embracing the message of Jesus crucified and risen, coming to understand that he is the one sent from God, long prophesied to bear the sins of the world. They're embracing this message. They're forming then through the baptism of the Spirit of God individual local churches joining with that great body and company of believers forming these individual local churches and Paul and Barnabas ministering our verse 23 I think I said 24 but verse uh, Acts chapter 14 and verse well let me just go with verse 21 let's just start there they preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples and they returned to Lystra Iconium and Antioch strengthening the disciples encouraging them to remain true to the faith we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God they said Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. So Paul and Barnabas and this missionary, first missionary circuit through the Roman world are establishing elders in various churches. When we come to Acts chapter 15, we see these elders being referenced in the Jerusalem church. Acts chapter 15 and verse 1, Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This is the problem with which they're dealing. Verse 2, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. So these leaders, apostles and elders working together in the Jerusalem church 
giving guidance and leadership to it. Verse 6, the apostles and elders met to consider the question. And then verse 23, we read in formal conclusion, verse 22, rather, of Acts 15, Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So the apostles and elders, along with the whole church, we see there the structure that it continues to develop. Let's take just one look at Paul's writings to an individual, that is Titus, Titus chapter 1. Very consistent with this theme that we are seeing in the history of the New Testament church in the book of Acts. Titus chapter 1, Paul instructs Titus as he gives leadership to the local churches there on the island of Crete. Titus chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul reminds Titus, I, the, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. He then gives the qualifications that Titus is to look for as he appoints elders. In other words, to do exactly what Paul has done, appointing elders in various uh, locations, in various churches as they spring up. So as local churches spring up through the Eastern Roman Empire, they are fitted with spiritual leaders who are most often referred to in the text of Scripture as elders. Now what are these men supposed to do? What is their job description? What is their function? It really should not be a surprise to us that God would select out leaders and identify them as shepherds. Going back to Ephesians chapter 4, that word pastor is the idea of shepherd. It's really not a surprise to us because this is how God led Old Testament Israel as well, or referred to the leaders. Now with the new church bound together in Jesus Christ, God selects out what he refers to as shepherds and describes their work in those terms. There's no place that we find this any more carefully put than in Acts chapter 20. I invite you there to Acts chapter 20, where Paul, concluding his third missionary circuit, settles, uh, stops at Ephesus, where he had settled earlier for over two years. We, the text of Scripture says two years. It appears to be, as we put the history together, that it's almost three but it's uh, two solid years there at Ephesus where he teaches. Ephesus being a wealthy cosmopolitan city, it is connected very well by various roads to 230 other independent cities. And so Paul, as he stops there, uh, presents the gospel of Christ, and it is broadcast from that place. If you look back in chapter 19 of the book of Acts, chapter 19 and verse 8, <clears throat> We notice there Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God, Acts 19.9. But some of them became obstinate and they refused to believe and publicly maligned the way, so Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord from this nerve center of Ephesus, the word of God is spreading out throughout this region of the Roman Empire. Well, notice then down in verse 20 of 19, 1920, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Isn't that a great phrase? The word of God grows in power. 
It can't be any more powerful than it is, but the point, of course, is in its response. There are people coming to uh, Christ as Savior, and then this is the context in which, in part, Paul comes back to various of these churches that are now springing up and settles elders in those churches to serve as shepherds. We come then to Acts chapter 20. The context here is that Paul is circling back now to Jerusalem, and as he does so, he lands on the coast, a little bit to the south of Ephesus, at the city of Miletus. And for reasons that are undescribed in the text of Scripture, he does not take the time to go back into the interior to Ephesus, perhaps time issues, perhaps there's concern about uh, safety issues, but at any rate, he stops at Miletus, and he has called the elders of the Ephesian church to meet him there at this uh, city of Miletus. Acts chapter 20 and verse 17, we see that from Miletus. He sends to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he says to them. So this is a speech of Paul here in Acts chapter 20. Now, Paul mostly will talk to them about what he has done when he, as he is among them, as he has been among them as a leader. He spends most of his time recounting his ministry to these Ephesian elders. It is at verse 28 that there is a subtle shift in his discussion where he begins now to issue direct commands to these shepherds. He says, I am not going to be with you much longer. Remember the way that I lived. And now at verses 28 through to verse 31, he issues direct commands to them. At verse 32, you'll notice that he once again begins to talk about his own ministry, which of course he is laying out here as an example to them. We could study the entire speech and see that it is all intended to instruct these elders. But it is at 21, 28 through 31, just that brief section, that he sort of levels his guns right at them and says, here is what you are to do as you shepherd the flock of God. With that in mind, let's look at verse 18 and just get a running head start into that section. Verse 18 of Acts chapter 20. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that none of you, among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom, will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Now at verse 28, he directly challenges these church leaders to shepherd the flock of God. I think we could lay this out positively, first of all. He says that they must exercise spiritual oversight of God's flock. 
That's his proposition to them, and that is all of what he is saying as he gives his own account to them. Verse 28, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he bought with his own blood. We, I think, are hindered somewhat by our English translation here. Let me just clear that up real briefly, and we will center for some time here in verse 28. Keep watch, or the idea could be take heed. Take heed, pay attention to yourselves. Now you notice I didn't read it wrongly, accidentally, but I read it the way that I think it should be translated. It is keep watch, or take heed, and then go down to the middle of the verse where there is a a period, made you overseers, period, and then it says be shepherds of God's flock. Those actually hang together. It is keep watch to shepherd. Pay careful attention to shepherd the flock of God. That is the command in this verse. Now that having been said, let's notice here that this oversight will involve, first of all, self-management. He says keep watch or pay attention or take heed to yourselves to shepherd the church of God. We have to be cautious here as Americans listening to this. We could filter this through the mold of pop psychology and say, Keep watch over yourselves or take heed to yourselves. What Paul's saying here is, and guys, be careful. to Don't push yourselves too hard. Make sure you get plenty of sleep and don't overwork yourself. We don't want anybody to get burned out here. Make sure you take careful heed to yourself. That's how Americans read such statements. We've read earlier what Paul has gone through. He is working night and day. He is dealing with the plots of individuals against him for murder. Verse 24, he says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. So it's obviously not what Paul is saying when he says, take heed to yourself. What he's saying is take heed to yourself to be good shepherds of God's flock, to shepherd the flock of God. You need, this is a job you must do well. It will take scrupulous self-evaluation and spiritual dedication. There are jobs you can kind of coast through in life. This is not one of them. Spiritual shepherding takes hard work, and you're going to have to take heed to yourself to shepherd the flock of God. Now, the Bible repeats the theme of moral qualification and example as part of the way that a shepherd should take heed to himself as a shepherd of the flock. Very briefly, we'll cross-reference and come back here, but 1 Peter chapter 5 We're familiar also with this passage. We've looked at it in Bible study in our home groups here just in recent months. But 1 Peter chapter 5, remember here Peter is addressing the elders and he in fact calls himself, though an apostle, refers to himself as an elder and says to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder. 1 Peter 5 verse 1, I appeal to you as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed, be shepherds, or again, the, the imperative, shepherd God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Take heed to shepherd the flock. Means to be an example to the flock. It means to nurture your heart and to keep pure before the Lord. Let's go backwards uh, toward the front of the New Testament further to 1 Timothy 4 and verse 12. 1 Timothy 4 
and verse 12. We see the same idea coming out here as Paul instructs Timothy in his shepherding function. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. The point there is God has placed you in this position to serve as his shepherd. Know that that's where you are. Don't let people look down on you for other reasons. Not because you're young, but as opposed to letting them look down on your youth, set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity until I come devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. I think we're hearing here a little bit of what Paul means when he says, take heed to shepherd the church. Take heed to yourselves to shepherd the church. It is to watch your life and your doctrine closely. 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. First Thessalonians chapter 2, as Paul speaks to the Thessalonians about his own ministry among them, he says in chapter 2, beginning at verse 4, On the contrary, we speak as men approved of God to be entrusted with the gospel. First Thessalonians 2, verse 4, We are not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. There's no shepherd of this church who feels that he adds up to these exhortations. And I know the elders of our church, I know not one of them believes that they've arrived. We long to be better examples. We long to show more the likeness in the person of Jesus Christ. But we fall short. And we need your prayers that we would heed, take heed to ourselves to be the shepherds that we ought to be. Oversight is their basic function, and it involves self-management. It also, as we go back to Acts chapter 20 and Paul's speech to the elders there, it also involves divine appointment. Keep watch over yourselves to shepherd the flock of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers. The Holy Spirit, who functions to teach the meaning of Scripture, to convict us of sin, 
to comfort us in our trial, to bring into us, to make us into the image of Jesus Christ. This one has appointed you as elders over the assembly. Now, what do you think he wants you to do? You would expect a man to do the very same, to teach the meaning of Scripture, to rebuke sin, to comfort believers in trial, and to seek to form Christ in the lives of the people of the, of the body. Oversight involves self-management. It involves divine appointment. It thirdly involves careful attention to the flock. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Lord has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. By referring to the people of God as a flock, it is clear that the kind of oversight that God intends is not business management. It's not financial management. It's not building management primarily. It is not program management primarily. What God has in mind is sheep management. In other words, elders are to spiritually guide and protect and feed and care for the flock of God. They're to give spiritual comfort and direction and help. Put it together with the other instructions that we've read. It means that the shepherd's duty is to pray for the spiritual welfare of the flock. And, of course, to lead the flock to pray for the flock. Their duty is to patiently teach the whole counsel of God and to render spiritual counsel and guidance and skillful living. They are to employ uplifting words of comfort to steady the weak of heart. Gracious and healing words to bind up the hurting and distressed. Firm and pointed words to arrest the attention of the undisciplined, the apathetic, and the erring members of the flock. Simply put, they are to exercise active oversight of the spiritual progress of the church. You know it's a blessing and a curse all in one that we hear these things and say, we all know this. Because you realize there are so many believers in Christian churches in this land in particular who don't know this. If they would have to write down a job description for a pastor, it would look like something very different than what we've read here. But this is what God calls us to do as shepherds of the church and what he calls the church to understand. It's vital that we realize this oversight is exercised in accordance with God's Word. It is also important for the shepherd to realize that this type of leadership of spiritual direction is exercised in behalf of people that Jesus purchased with His own blood. You notice that phrase there at the end of verse 28. Shepherd the church of God which He bought with His own blood. That's not a throwaway phrase. Of course the church is bought with the blood of Jesus. But Paul says to these shepherds, remember, that's the people you serve. The church belongs to Jesus Christ. He's the one who bought it with His blood. There's no pastor that's purchased a church with his influence or with his money. We can point to some who seem that, like that's been the case throughout history. But it's not the case. If the true church exists in a local assembly, that church has been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. It is His He's bought it out of the marketplace of depravity to bring glory and honor to His name. The church belongs to Christ. And it implies that a pastor cannot be contented merely with the financial prosperity of the assembly or with its numerical growth or with buildings and programs or with the accolades of his colleagues. A pastor can never rest 
as he sees to the spiritual prosperity of the flock. There's no way that that can be accomplished in this lifetime. But we must also set our hope and our focus there on the spiritual growth of God's people. And that can be exasperating work, frankly. Very exasperating from time to time. There's a strong temptation as you give spiritual leadership, and I'll go to this more next week. We're not talking only about those in official church leadership, but it filters down right to the very homes in which we live and the people that we influence. You know that as you seek to give spiritual help and and hope to see and build the prosperity of the flock, that there can be a temptation to be frustrated with the immature and to be angry with the proud and to be irritated with the contrary, and to be resentful of the uninvolved and the apathetic. But what must keep him filled with humble love for the flock under his charge is this awesome thought. Jesus bought these people with his blood. He bought these people with his blood. He loved them that way. What business do I have to love them any other way? They're all precious sheep to him, What excuse can I possibly find for them not to be precious to me? And so the shepherd must displace natural bitterness and anger and frustration and irritation with agape love. Positively, then, there is to be exercise of spiritual oversight of God's flock. That is the duty. Negatively, he goes on in verse 29, they must guard the flock against false teaching. We need to read verse 29, I think, in light of verse 27. So let me just go back there for a moment. For I have not hesitated, Paul says, to proclaim to you the whole counsel of God. Verse 29, he then goes on in the negative assessment of their responsibilities to say, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So he's saying to the shepherds here that they need to anticipate false teachers. The wolf is the mortal enemy of sheep. The flock has to be protected from this predator, and it's used often in Scripture as a figure of speech of false teachers. That's how it's used here. Even from within the Ephesian church, there would rise up people, he says to them. That's a pretty negative guy, isn't it? Paul's saying. He knows reality. He knows the truth is never to be taken for granted. And he says, as you go back from Miletus here, back up north to Ephesus, and you begin to resume again your pastoral responsibilities, know this, there are people in your assemblies who are going to rise up with false teaching. Now, It's a much different day than is our own. At that point in time, the church was the church. There was a church in town, generally, and there might have been several house churches, but the church basically hung together and was one. We tend to put the lines around the outside of the church. For this early church, they needed to fight false doctrine from within because all false doctrine connected to Christian teaching was arising from within their assemblies. Now, we have lines around. There's certain things that nobody in the wildest dreams would ever expect to be taught here in this church or anyone to want to come here if they believe these things. So it is a little bit of a different day. Now what happens, it seems more, that the wolves are on the outside of our fence of Eden Baptist Church. 
And I can tell you by experience that as people leave our assembly, it is not uncommon, particularly those who are fighting with the truth of God and resisting it, as they walk out on the other side of the fence, the wolves are waiting for them. And false teaching is encountered routinely by those who leave the assembly. That's not to say there's no other good assemblies there, but if you go to other assemblies where the Word of God is taught faithfully, generally the fence is on the outside of the church. It's not work that needs to be done so much within the church. I've been in a church, and it's not this church, and it's not been most of the churches I've been in my life, but I've been in a church where false doctrine came up from within this assembly, but it's very rare. It needed to be rebuked publicly. Thankfully, it was and was dealt with quickly. But our problem has more to do with the television set. And it has more to do with false teachers that are out there peddling all kinds of garbage that's really false doctrine. And people are influenced by that false doctrine. Paul says, I think then to us, by way of implication, realize that false doctrine is out there. Realize that the assembly is going to be hearing it. And speak in such a way that you guard them against the wolves. That's your job. False doctrine, you notice here in verses 29 and 30, arises from the teachings of men who crave attention and feelings of self-importance. The Bible does not picture false prophets as people who are just innocently misguided. Just kind of made a mistake on that doctrine of Scripture. If it is the core, central, fundamental doctrine of Scripture, if there's somebody who's off base with that, the Bible says they're doing it because they want money. They're doing it because they want acclaim. The truth of God has been delivered. We're not talking about secondary, ancillary doctrines that we debate among ourselves because we don't have enough light or enough insight into the Word of God to understand. We're not talking about debates about how we live out the Christian life, what is the appropriate response, and how are we to live as citizens in this world, and those types of discussions. Whether or not the uh, angels of Genesis 6 were real angels or were men, and all those, not that. We're talking about the core doctrines. When there is someone who rises up to say, Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead. Jesus Christ was not virgin born. The Bible contains errors and is simply a book of human invention. When there are people who are peddling those doctrines, the reason, says the Bible consistently, is they want money and acclaim, either or or both. That's what motivates them. It is evil that motivates them, not simply being misguided. And if you have a problem with that, as you compare with some false teacher, your problem's not with me, your problem is what the Bible consistently teaches about false teachers. We need to be warned. They should anticipate false teachers, Paul says. Secondly, they should resist false teachers, verse 31. So be on your guard. The positive call to them is to shepherd, is to take heed to themselves to shepherd the flock of God. To take heed to themselves and the church to shepherd it. That's the positive. Here's the negative. To be on your guard against these false teachers. We could translate the Greek phrase, stay awake, watch, remembering, he says, verse 31, that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. 
Paul had warned them for three years how to live and how to combat falsehood. They were to emulate his example by keeping a vigilant watch for false teachers. And so it says to us again that for Paul, truth mattered. It wasn't ancillary. It wasn't peripheral. Truth was central. And he cried when he defended the truth. He knew what was at stake. It is with tears that he warned against false teaching. That is, says to me that he was intense, intensely passionate about the truth of God. That at times it brought tears to him as he warned how people were destroying the true message delivered from God. And that passion drove him to labor night and day, warning the flock as he taught them the whole will of God, verse 27. In like manner, legitimate pastors care about the truth, and they pour out their lives teaching and defending it. Do you hear this? It is mildly exasperating and much more filled with pity. I I, I respond much more with pity as I hear the reasons why some people do not stay in our church. But I'll tell you, the reasons are, if it wasn't so serious, would be comical. We have people that have chosen, they've sat in this place. They have listened to the Word of God preached. They've opened their Bibles and looked through the text of Scripture and seen that it was being delivered. And they've sang songs that are purposefully put together and lift up the glory of God. And they go out and say, seriously, the halls are too narrow and not lighted enough. And the rooms are too small. And Like I said, there's more pity in my heart for someone who says something like that, but I say that, does that not express our age and our day? It's all about convenience. It's all about good feelings. Doctrine matters far too little to far too many people. The truth of God is not considered in so many churches. It's more about how I feel. It's more about how things look. It's more about the convenience of the situation. It's more about the professionalness of those who lead rather than about the truth of God's Word and how it is defended and presented. What we must remember, brothers and sisters, is that the church is not ours. The church belongs to Jesus Christ And to Jesus Christ, truth matters. And our business as a church is to disseminate and to defend and to adorn the truth of God that we might taste and see that the Lord is good. And I, for one, frankly, would much rather meet in a barn in the middle of the winter and hear the truth of God disseminated and defended than to live in a glass cathedral where it was compromised week in and week out. And I think that's why you are here. I trust that it is, and I trust that we will grow in our defense of the truth of God. That is what is taking place. The resistance of false teaching and the equipping of God's saints in everything that we do, to some degree, but particularly in those key events, those things that are the central feature of our church. When Pastor Pratt stands here before the adult class or as other teachers are teaching throughout this assembly, that's what we're doing. 
we're not keeping alive a tradition merely. We're not just giving people something to do. What we are seeking to do is adorn the doctrine of Christ, to teach the truth of God's Word and to defend it against false teaching. Now, most of the defense against false teaching is, frankly, just teaching the truth. We could spend all of our life picking out every false doctrine and false teaching and do nothing else but look at the critics. But that is the point of our Sunday school work, our teaching time on Sunday mornings. That is what takes place quite consistently here on Sunday nights. And on Sunday nights, particularly as Pastor Pratt speaks, sometimes he gets very pointed about very specific people. Always graciously, always righteously, I think. But we are doing that purposefully to say, when this person says this, and it sells all kinds of books, what we need to ask is not, is it popular? What we need to ask is, is it true? And so we purposefully lay out what is being said and being taught by the teachers of our day to say whether it is right or whether it is wrong. And there are efforts being made that way within our church, and we have much to improve. In fact, to get behind those that are saying the things that are right. The problem is, is that's a minority uh, book these days, it seems. But we want to elevate true doctrine. That doesn't come just from Baptists, by the way. It comes from God's people through the world, from many different denominations and walks of life. But there are people who see the truth and who elevate elements of it. And that's what we want to laud. We don't agree with everything that everybody said that wrote the songs we sang of today. We realize there's some things we have to leave alone and that no one person speaks all of the truth. But we want to keep coming back and doing this work of presenting the truth of God and defending it against false doctrine and that's what we're doing. It is the shepherd's job to make sure we stay on track biblically. There's an article which has been very inspiring to me throughout the years. I read it, I think, the first time during seminary, and it lit a fire under me. And it comes from a liberal pastor. By that, I mean he denies that Jesus rose from the dead. He denies that Jesus is the Son of God. He denies that the Bible is without error. Now, he keeps a lot of the Christian parsley on the plate. He uses a lot of the terms, and he wants to be seen as a Christian and is, in fact, a pastor of a Christian chapel. But he talked to me one day in this article, and I've read it to you before, and I, by God's grace, will read it to you again, because this might as well just be framed on my wall. He says, I'm a mainline, liberal, Protestant, Methodist-type Christian. I know we're soft on Scripture, Norman Vincent Peale has exercised a more powerful effect on our preaching than St. Paul. Pretty honest. Listen to us on Sunday, and Leo Bascalgia, or I don't know who that is, honestly, but, or Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood may come to mind before you think of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. I know we play fast and loose with Scripture. But I've always had this fantasy that somewhere, like in Texas, there were preachers who preached it all. 
Genesis to Revelation. Without blinking an eye, straight from the Bible, just like Jesus said it. I took great comfort in knowing that even while I preached a pitifully compromised, peeled, P-E-A-L-E-D, peeled down gospel, that somewhere good old Bible-believing preachers were offering their congregations the unadulterated word straight up. Do you know how disillusioned it has been for me to realize that many of these self-proclaimed biblical preachers now sound more like liberal mainliners than liberal mainliners? At the very time those of us in the mainline, old-line, sidelined were repenting of our pop-psychological pap and rediscovering the joy of disciplined biblical preaching, these biblical preachers, in quotations, were becoming user-friendly and inclusive, taking their homiletical cues from the felt needs of us boomers and busters rather than the excruciating demands of the Bible. He lays out in this article, first of all, pop psychology. He then goes on and says, secondly, a second way in which preach, preaching wanders off the straight and narrow path is politics. And he says, I know, I know, we played this game before any religious right types were invited to the White House. We were there first. Our church built a four-story office building on Capitol Hill whereby we could lobby Congress more efficiently as the largest Protestant church in America. So we talk a great deal about politics too, but now it's the religious right, but it's essentially the same project that we abandoned 20 years ago. It is a politicized project and more biblical preachers, once they get infatuated with politics, don't stay biblical long. He goes on, that is not saying everything by any means when it comes to pop psychology or politics, and of course there is place for politics and there is place to consider the issues of the day as people suffer. But this has had a profound influence on me, this article and this idea, this truth. I thought out there somewhere there was somebody who preached the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, straight up without apology. I hope that if this man came into our assembly and sat here for a year, he'd say, there is such a church. I hope that he'd say there is a place where truth matters. There is a place that's otherworldly. There is a place where the gospel of Jesus Christ is elevated and exalted. God has ordained that His church be led by spiritual shepherds and by the Holy Spirit He places such individuals in local assemblies. It's the responsibility of these shepherds to exercise spiritual oversight and it is their responsibility to guard the flock against false doctrine. 
Paul calls the church to respond to this work in 1 Thessalonians 5 by treating those with respect who do this work for their work's sake. Now they ought to be respectable in their own character and place. But Paul says, respect them for his work. In other words, learn to love them not because you like them necessarily, but learn to love them for the fact that God has placed them as shepherds of your soul. Love them because they pray for you daily. Love them because as a group of elders they pray on a regular basis for you. Love them because the pastors pray and the wayward troubled souls are dealt with. And our elders, I can say, do bear the burden of those late hours and inconvenient meetings and those overwhelming problems that visit an assembly. Because it's not about the bottom line. It's not about the size of the church. It's not about what we can do to spend our time most effectively at becoming more influential as a church in this community. It's about caring for the flock of God that God has brought into our midst and going out and reaching lost sheep to bring them in and then to deal with their spiritual issues and concerns. Now, teaching the whole counsel of God by means of preaching and teaching is a painstaking process. Exposing the meaning of the Bible and faithfully exposing the error of false teachers is a daunting task. It is a task that requires tremendous effort on the part of the shepherds. It also requires a great effort on your part. I suspect that one of the reasons many people do not stay with our assembly that visit is because 45-minute sermons are just too much. Now, I'll be the first to say, and perhaps in this message in particular, that a pastor can say too much about some things and take some time that he shouldn't take. But I think those of you that are with us week in and week out know that the Word of God is being put under a lamp. And so I say, do you want fast food or do you want good food? You can preach a sermon in 15 or 20 minutes. I can preach a sermon in 15 or 20 minutes, believe it or not. I just spoke at an institution here in recent days. They gave me 30 minutes and I used 25. So just so you know, it's possible. <laughs> I was pretty shocked myself, but... <laughs> it takes some time to unfold this book. Pretty light going today in some respects, but it takes time. Now that time doesn't only come from a church saying to its, to its uh, shepherds, to its pastors, go ahead and study. It also comes from that assembly being patient and enduring doctrine and biblical exposition. So I call upon you to endure sound doctrine. It takes time. I call on you who are children. Sometimes I know it gets long in here. It probably gets long in here in your Sunday school class from time to time. There's something going on here that you don't yet understand fully what's happening. But I think there's a day when you leave this church when there's going to be a grounding that you appreciate. Hang in there. Keep working. For those of you that are adults, keep trying to stay awake. Keep with it. Endure it. 
It gets long sometimes, but realize what we're up to here. Eden Baptist Church does not have perfect shepherds. But I think we ought to, in light of Scripture today, at least stop to thank God that He gives to the church pastors and teachers. That this is His design to defend the truth and to disseminate the truth so that Christ is formed in our hearts. That's the grace of God. It's His plan. And may we not get off base from that, but be able into the next generation to continue to preach and teach the Word of God faithfully, defending it against false doctrine. There's going to be a lot more to do in the days coming. A lot more to do. Because the false doctrine just continues to roll. We need to fight it in various means. But for the church, the primary means is the preaching and teaching of God's Word on the part of His shepherds. That's what He's called us to. That's what we must do. Let's stand together. Lord, we commit ourselves to the pattern that you have laid out in your word. I pray for wisdom to know how we should pursue our lives as your people. I pray, God, that we'd be faithful and fruitful in this endeavor and to keep the charge that's been entrusted to us, to be salt and light in this world, to be faithful as a church, to uphold the truth. Bless us, I pray, Lord God, to resist the evil that surrounds us and to be at peace in our relationship with Christ. I ask for anyone here who does not know you as shepherd, that you would teach them and show them and enlighten their eyes to know that the Lord is our shepherd. And I pray, God, that they will understand that the death and resurrection of Christ was for them, that they would embrace this revelation and trust your word and trust your purposes. Bless our day together here, and I pray that in every way that we as a church might bring pleasure to you and seek to do what you'd have us to do and to be who you'd have us to be. Guide us, Lord God, I pray, to be your people. In the name of Christ, amen.